Welcome to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 82. This week we're talking to Charlie Sobeck, the system engineer for the Kepler Space Telescope, NASA's first planet hunting mission. And Charlie's been working on this mission here at Ames since 2001 and has held various roles in getting the spacecraft off the ground and keeping it humming along in deep space. This month marks the ninth anniversary of Kepler's launch, and it's a bit of a bittersweet moment. Kepler is expected to run out of fuel within several months, and that'll put an end to an amazing run of scientific data collection that has truly changed our view of the night skies. But if you're a fan of the podcast, you might recognize Charlie's voice from back in episode 54. Uh, you can check out that episode for his background on how he joined NASA. And also for next week, we'll have another special Kepler episode with two of our podcast veterans, Geert Berenston from episode 47 and Jesse Dotson from episode 40. So stay tuned for that new episode next week. But for now, let's just jump into our conversation with Charlie Sobeck. to have with us our returning Jeopardy champion, Mr. Charlie Sobeck. How's it going? It's going great. How are you doing? Doing good. I think the last time that we had chatted, I think you were still the project manager for Kepler at that time, I think. I think I was. You're right. So for folks who are listening, if you weren't aware, you can hop onto our landing page. And the first episode that we did with Charlie, we did the whole uh, background, how he joined NASA, how he got involved, and all of that fun stuff. But today we're talking a little bit more about Kepler, um, talking about like, you know, what is what's the final swan song, you know, for Kepler. Um, and also have Allison. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, um, Allison's this also is my on. debut. <laughs> exactly. And so we're not going to go into depth on on everything. Allison, she's one of us on our communications team. And so you'll start hearing her voice more and more, especially as, you know, attention to Kepler and exoplanets starts ramping up. We can just touch base, Charlie, on like what's happened since we last chatted or what's going on in your world. Well, you mentioned that my, my last time here, I was the project manager, uh, and I've stepped down from that role. Uh, we're trying to build uh, new project managers here at Ames. Uh, so I've turned the reins over to my deputy, uh, Maura Fugier, and she's managing the project. I'm still very much attached to Kepler, so I've taken the, on the job of project system engineer, um, helping to close out the mission as, we, as, as it winds down here. Let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, we, we've chatted with um, a lot of people related to Kepler. Mm-hmm. I mean, people will be familiar with Jesse Dotson and Garrett Berenstein. So what are we looking at in this future? And uh, Allison specifically, you've been working with them, hitting the ground running, learning all things <laughs> Kepler as well. Yeah, and we have kind of an important date coming up. Uh, March 7th is the nine-year anniversary of Kepler, which is so cool. It's been up nine years, and uh, this will probably be the last year that we celebrate a live spacecraft, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that. So um, for folks who aren't fully aware, I mean, I think most people, if they're listening to a NASA podcast, (laughs) they're interested. And we've done a lot of content around Kepler, so we all know. It's like the first space telescope from NASA confirmed exoplanets. And so now first mission finished out. We're in the K2 mission now. But eventually, as all things eventually come to an end, or really, I don't know, it's like even when it comes to an end, there's still like tons of science that come after that. Oh, yeah. The spacecraft will uh, operations will come to an end. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think that the, uh, the mission data is going to be used for decades. Oh, yeah. It's, it, it it's going to be a wealth of uh, information. 
So it's kind of like a weird misnomer where it's like even when it's over, it's not really over. Yeah, we, we're using the term end of flight. Yeah, not, yeah, it's not the end of the mission. It's not. It's certainly not the end of the science. But we are approaching the end of the flight mission. The the spacecraft itself can't live forever. Could you say a little bit more about what that means, Charlie? Like what what does end of flight mean, and and where are we in this this final phase of? the life of the spacecraft? Well, the first thing I'd do is to, to point out how fortunate we are, because end of flight could mean anything. And for some spacecraft, end of flight happens about 10 minutes after launch, and there's a big failure, and, yeah. and it never gets to orbit. Okay, we passed that. Uh, our original mission was supposed to be three and a half years when we launched. Uh, the Kepler mission ran for four years, so it, that got finished, and, and uh, uh, then we lost a couple of reaction wheels, and we couldn't continue the Kepler mission. We sort of took a year off to figure out how to continue and do this, this fabulous K2 mission that we've done. And we've been doing the K2 mission now for four years. So again, really lucky. We, yeah. we're, we're nine years past launch. We're, we've taken four years of Kepler data, four years of K2 data, and only now are we really seriously starting to talk about the end of flight where the spacecraft just can't continue operating. If nothing else goes wrong, we're going to run out of fuel. Mm -hmm. But we've dodged a lot of bullets. We didn't fail on the launch pad. We got to orbit. We haven't been hit by a meteor. Yeah. So let's focus on the positives. Well, it's one of those, it's like, you, we've been in overtime, and how rare is it that you're sitting in overtime for almost the same duration of what right. the original game was? Right. So it's all it's all bonus from here on out. Yeah, it's also curious, I mean, we've been talking a lot about fuel supply and, and the sort of the indeterminate aspect of it, and Charlie, you have such a great way of explaining why it's actually kind of difficult to estimate fuel supply on a spacecraft and even in a car. Yeah, yeah. fuel fuel is is hard to to uh, quantify any in any sense. Even your computer that shows you how much electric charge is left it's in your battery, quite accurate. it's never really very accurate because you just don't know how much is left there. Uh, I make the point that you know in my car with hundred years of technology behind it. Um, I can look at the little needle, it goes to empty, and it will hover there for quite a while. After a while, uh, the little light goes on. And I've learned that I, when the light goes on, I can pull into a gas station, fill up the tank, and I have a 16-gallon tank, and it only takes 14 gallons to, to fill it. Uh, yeah. So when the light comes on, I'm, I've learned that there's now uh, two gallons left. I, I have some time. Uh, for the spacecraft, there's no gas station. So we can't do that exercise. We can't calibrate it. Um, when the light comes on, when whatever indicators we have say things are getting low, the best we know is the end is approaching. But we really can't say when or you know how much fuel there is left. We have a number of ways we can estimate the fuel. Uh, but the answer is we've never emptied the tank, so we never really know. So I'm going to dig a little bit into the weeds. What is the fuel? Uh, the, so, <laughs> technically, the I'm fuel is it's uh, not hydrazine gas. monopropellant. <laughs> oh, of course. So, <laughs> At your local Walmart <laughs> gas station. Right. So it's it's a fluid that uh, that it doesn't need uh, a uh, oxidizer or a fuel. It's just one fluid that when it goes through the thrusters, it ignites and it provides thrust. Um, it's pressurized in the tank. And that's what drives it into the thrusters down fuel lines, just like you have fuel lines in your car. Um, and that is being pushed out by an air bladder within the tank, which was pressurized. So as we use the fuel, that bladder expands and keeps pushing the fuel 
out of the tank, down the lines. And where are we at right now with that? We're pretty close to the edge, aren't we? We calculate we are. As I say, we've never been able to calibrate it. We've never been able to do this exercise of pulling into the service station, refilling it, and find out exactly how much we've used. Yeah, and what does that look like when you run out of fuel? Like, why is that such a game changer? Maybe this sounds like a... A dumb question, but why? Why? What are this? What is the fuel used for? I know there's solar panels on the spacecraft, so could you just rejigger yeah. those for for a power supply? Well, yeah. So the we, we do have a solar panel, and it produces electricity, and it's used to run all the electronics on board the spacecraft. Uh, in fact, in fact, those reaction wheels that we use to help point uh, are electrically run. They spin up the the, the masses and so forth uh, to provide stability in pointing. Uh, we don't actually move the spacecraft. We don't what we call translate it. There's no rocket engine to put it in a different orbit. Uh, it's in whatever orbit it's going to be in. So what we use the fuel for is to change the pointing of the spacecraft. Mm-hmm. We want to point the spacecraft at a certain target. We want to point the antenna at the Earth at times. That's what we're using the fuel for. Um, even when we use reaction wheels to, to point the spacecraft, uh, as the reaction wheels push against the solar pressure, they are losing momentum, and we've got to refurbish the momentum. We've got to replenish the momentum in the reaction wheels, and that's done with the thrusters as well. So the fuel is all about keeping the spacecraft pointed where it's supposed to be. That means when we run out of fuel, we're not going to be able to point the spacecraft anymore. I, I think of my my phone as it starts getting turning yellow. You're starting your power is getting low. You put it into low power mode, or maybe you turn off some settings to try to like save as much as you can. Even when you're driving a car, when that fuel light comes in, maybe you're a little more efficient as how you hit the gas. Right, no smart. more jackrabbit starts. You know you're gonna try exactly. to coast as we can. And, and I'm guessing been, there's the same. That's the same idea. You guys are trying to conserve as much as possible and get as much as you can. That's been our our, uh, our guiding principle for four years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kepler was, itself was pretty efficient. We weren't too worried about fuel at that point. We had launched. We had a full tank. Who cares when you have a full tank, right? Yeah. Um, when the reaction wheels failed and we started to use more thrusters, uh, use more fuel, we were becoming more conscious of it. And we started instituting uh, fuel efficiency measures and so forth. Uh, when we started the K2 mission, uh, we were pretty fuel efficient. Uh, we weren't as fuel efficient as Kepler was because uh, it was designed to operate in the Kepler mode. But in the four years that we've been operating, we keep getting more and more efficient in our usage. When we started K2, we have these campaigns where we look at a part part of the sky for three months at a time. We guessed that we could do maybe 10 campaigns. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was what we thought the fuel could accommodate. Well, here we are. We just finished campaign 16. And we're still still talking about when is the fuel going to end. So we've gotten better. um, and, And I think we've gotten as efficient as we can. So I don't expect uh, further improvements at this point. I think from when we last talked, it's like a lot of your career has been kind of juggling that science and also the engineering. And as a project manager, you get to play in both of these worlds. How is that going? Because it's like I I love talking about these big machines, and it's like fascinating. The human beings have put this stuff up in space, and we're learning about like the universe. But it's like, you know, as cool as the big toy is, <laughs> expensive toy, it's. It's you're doing it for a purpose. It's all about like the science. That's the at the end of the day, that's like the most important part of it all. We're all working just for the science. I consider myself yeah. an enabler. Uh, my my goal is to enable the science, and it's interesting when you think back on the Kepler mission because if we had not had these reaction wheels fail, 
we would be here in year nine of Kepler operations, which would have been great because the Yay. longer you operate, you're looking for planets in larger orbits. We'd be seeing planets around stars that are in Mars-like orbits, not just Earth-like orbits. And we'd, we'd be have even more planets and more habitable type planets, which would be great. On the other hand, what would we have lost? The K2 mission results have been stupendous. The, looking at different parts of the sky, at different kinds of stars, at solar uh, system objects, at supernovae, um, we would have lost all that uh, because we would have been exploring the Kepler mission. So I don't know whether it's been a net plus or a net minus. In the end, both missions have been really, really valuable and more than worth the cost that we've been uh, paying for them. One thing I, I get a kick out of, and we had it before when we've spoken with Gear, uh, as he came in, like Kepler, it's not just a, it's not just a NASA thing. It's like the data is out there. It's the scientific community. It's this huge group, and, and a big part of even like, the project itself is you know working with the scientific community to get them the data to get it quickly to let, let people know and how this stuff is going on and so a, a, an aspect of also in our world and i know something that allison has been working on is you know how do we get that out to people how do you, you let people know what's to come in in helping people understand like this is you know what the lifespan looks like so allison how's that been for you or how, how how's that working out yeah, I mean, it feels like every every day we field uh, new discoveries and exciting things that we could be talking about and communicating to the public about, and it's um, it feels like there's a there's a real treasure trove here of of material that keeps coming out of this data. It's really exciting to see that. Yeah, and, and so and, and I know even related to that. Uh, spoiler alert to people that we record the podcast in advance. <laughs> so uh, looking into the future, you know kind of like running through, like this is what it looks like. Charlie finished up a letter that we're going to eventually have out there. And Allison, I know you've been working with him on that. So is that just basically kind of spelling out what we're talking about here? Yeah, pretty much. We, we want to let the public know that um, that we are at this final phase of the mission, and you know Kepler has accomplished so many great things, and and here we are, we're we're kind of in the end game um, right now, and we will be seeing that play out over the upcoming months, and just give everyone a heads up that this is where we are. Charlie, what do you, how do you uh, how do you see it? Oh yeah, I think that uh, you know Kepler is a a global phenomena. The the data that we get, uh, and that's true of a lot of missions that have uh, uh, survived a long time. You know, the Hubble mission is a has been a global resource mm-hmm. for people. Uh, so whether you're talking about the uh, the science community, which is working actively with the data from both missions, both Kepler and K two, um, and publishing at a dramatic rate. Or you're talking about the general public who follow these kinds of missions. Uh, all of this material, we're trying to be as transparent as we can, put it all out there. Everybody should share in the excitement. This has been a terrific mission. It's always amazing to see how how much attention and interest uh, this mission really gets and, and how the public really craves um, this kind of amazing discovery that we've seen. And, and that's just so gratifying to be able to to put that out there and, and, and generate that kind of interest and explain, you know, this kind of science and really hold up the scientists and the work that they're doing and, and the mission is doing. It's it's really quite incredible. I know, at least in my world of the, you know, trying to communicate the, stu- the cool stuff that 
that people at NASA are doing. It's like, whether it's social media, it's live events, no matter what it is, you can guarantee that there's questions about exoplanets. <laughs> there's questions about this stuff. It is just, it, it, it's just one of the, the highest points is like everybody is like just frothy. Every time we do any kind of an announcement or a thing, people are like, oh my gosh, like what's going on? So I was at the uh, American Astronomical Society meeting uh, earlier this year, and I was talking to some folks there about how, um, you know, just 10 years ago, you'd go to these meetings and there was not, I mean, exoplanets was totally fringe. You, mm-hmm. you know, you were not among a big company to be an exoplanet researcher. And now it's like every panel has exoplanet discussions and papers, and it has totally blown open the field of, of this particular field in astronomy. And that's just so exciting to see. And it's not over, because as they have tests that's launching, you have JWST. It's like in all, almost all of the time when we're talking about new space telescopes, like exoplanets are in there. Yeah, and 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 it, whether it's exoplanets or other um, discoveries that the Kepler mission has made, um, our project scientist for Kepler, Natalie Battaglia, has long said that uh, we went from this backwater branch of science into uh, the forefront, where she claimed that every astronomer in the world, in some way, is using Kepler data. And this summer, we had a Kepler science conference, Kepler K2 science conference. And then the final day of that conference, she did a little experiment, which I thought was really interesting, with 300 people or so in the audience there. She, she got up in front and took a microphone and asked, would everybody who's published a paper on, with using Kepler data please stand up? Mm-hmm. And half or two-thirds of the audience stood up. She said, well, everybody who has received their Ph.D., by uh, using Kepler or K2 to stand up. Would everybody, and she just added these more and more things. Have you used Kepler this way? Have you used that Kepler that day? At the end of which, you know, there may have been a half a dozen people that were still mm-hmm. sitting. And Natalie said, you know, I could continue and eventually I'd get everybody to stand up. <laughs> nice. But it proved her point. Everybody is using Kepler data. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember like recently chatting with, uh, with Jesse Dotson about the thing of like the follow-up of like, the cool, the crazy thing about even K2, it's just not even about just exoplanets. There's like nebulas. There's other space bodies. It's like so much stuff that's even beyond what we even thought that the telescope would eventually be able to Absolutely. do. Absolutely. So it's like above and beyond all that. It's just it, crazy. It, it shows you the serendipityness of, uh, of having lost those reaction wheels. Bad news for Kepler. Wonderful news for the science of K2. We never would have been able to do that mission without that failure. Yeah, and Charlie, I just I, I remember we've had a lot of discussions about just what, um, in terms of the end game here, like collecting that last, squeezing every bit of science data as possible from the spacecraft before it runs out of fuel. Can you tell us a little bit about how how you do that, um, and and how do you bring that home that the as much data home as possible at this um, stage of the mission when? You know, it could run out of fuel at any point in time. I know you're monitoring the f- fuel supplies and, and, and looking for signs that it's going into a, a very low fuel state. Yeah, so bringing data back from the spacecraft is a really challenging job these days because mm-hmm. it's so far away. It's more than 90 million miles from, from Earth. It is as far from the Earth as the sun is from the Earth. Oh, wow. In a different direction, but but it's the same time. So just as it takes light eight and a half minutes to get from the sun to the Earth, 
it takes radio waves eight and a half minutes to get from the spacecraft to the ground or vice versa. Wow. It takes 17 minutes when we send a command before we're going to see the spacecraft respond to it. So it's a long ways away. And the signals are now very weak. So what we do with the K2 mission is that we get when we're gathering science data for three months, we're not bringing it to the ground. We're storing it on board in a recorder uh, because the spacecraft isn't turned towards the Earth and we can't bring down data at a high rate. Um, so at the end of the campaign, we turn the spacecraft and it's got one high gain antenna with a dish, a parabolic dish that focuses the beam and it can focus it on Earth and we can bring that data down that's been stored on the recorder. That's how we get data down from the spacecraft. With the fuel starting to, to show signs of running out, the worry is that you start a campaign, let's say you get two months into the campaign when you run out of fuel. Well, you've, you've filled the recorder two-thirds full. You had all that wonderful science yeah. data. It was there on board, but you didn't get a chance to bring it to the ground. So right now, our challenge is to monitor the fuel closely enough that when it shows signs of really not doing what it's supposed to do, that we're not getting the pointing that we wanted, that we're not able to spin up the reaction wheel, something like that, that we raise a flag so that with, it, with whatever fuel we have left, we can bring down the data we've recorded the data we've spent so much time and effort to get, we want to get it to the ground. It doesn't help us if it lives on the spacecraft forever. Yeah. We've got to get it to the ground. One of the really cool points that you you made in your letter, Charlie, was like how we can afford to to operate this way with Kepler being in deep space, whereas like you know um, more Earth circling satellites and spacecraft can't you have to like use up your remaining fuel supplies to mm -hmm. get it out of orbit so it doesn't land mm -hmm. on somebody's house mm -hmm. or like the planet or the um planetary missions like Cassini like they were really worried about it crashing into the moon so they they had to use remaining fuel supplies to send it into Saturn but like Kepler's a special spacecraft. It has a special yeah. mission in this sense in that you can you can let it, the fuel run dry and that's not you know something that other missions can afford to do, which is which is interesting. I think. Yeah, there there are different types of NASA missions, and so they all end in different ways. Um, there are near, near Earth missions where you have to worry about the final end of the spacecraft a collision. It could collide with a satellite. You don't want it to collide with the International Space Station. You don't want it falling uncontrolled into Earth's atmosphere and landing on somebody's head. So they have to have fuel remaining at the end of their mission to put themselves in a safe orbit and, and not let those kinds of bad things happen. There are another class of missions that are planetary kinds of missions. Missions at Mars, missions at uh, Jupiter. We recently saw Cassini, uh, where they purposely sent the spacecraft hurtling into the atmosphere of Saturn, rather than risk running out of fuel and having it collide with one of the planet, with one of the moons that could harbor life, contaminating that moon. A third class of, uh, of spacecraft, and Kepler resides in this third class, don't pose any particular risk to Earth or satellites or to habitable environments. We can afford to run until the thing just doesn't work anymore whether it's because it runs out of fuel or because a electronic component uh, finally fails or another reaction wheel fails in our case, uh, or whether we just run out of funds and it's just not worth uh, pursuing anymore, we can run to the very end. In Kepler's case, the very end is likely to be fuel. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that commonly ends the spacecraft mission, uh, a NASA mission. So in some sense, this is kind of new territory for us. We've asked around, 
and not a lot of people have uh, any experience in running a fuel uh, spacecraft to the end of fuel. And you don't even have to send the final commands to shut it down. I mean, that, that's not even required in a situation like this, right? No, we can we can just let it go until it quits working on its own. It's sort of like driving your car down the freeway until <laughs> it runs out of gas, and you don't have to worry about anything. It's just, you know, as long as it's an empty freeway, you know, if you're on the salt <laughs> yes. flats in Utah, you can do this kind of a thing. <laughs> uh, but uh, but the spacecraft is in a, uh, a no man's land. It's out in the middle of nowhere, and we can let it just go until it dies. And we can leave it in whatever state it happens to be in. That's okay. Out of curiosity, back you know, in 2009, we were looking at launching or even just the inception of coming up with this. The end of flight had to be in that process. I mean, like, is there planning this even before launch of the, I, there had to have been some assumptions or thoughts about this is how it would look like. Is it completely different or I'm just wondering what our knowledge now compared to what we knew before launch, like how that like shook out, I guess. I think that the answer is we're exactly where we expected we would be. OK, Um we didn't have to make it clear at launch because we were in this third class of missions. If you're in one of these other classes, part of the launch certification is to say, you've got to know how this thing is going to end. What's your end game plan? For our mission, our end game plan was we're going to be out in no man's land. It doesn't matter what happens to the spacecraft. So we don't need to plan it now. Okay. And everybody knew that and, and agreed to it. And, and that was one of the uh, criteria for launch. Um, and now here we are. It hasn't really changed. We don't really care how it ends. It, we can leave it in whatever state we want. So we hadn't given it a lot of thought. Now that we are here, most of our thought is going into how do we get the most final science off the spacecraft and down into the hands of scientists before it goes into that final resting spot. And I know probably a lot of people will ask this question, like, what does happen to the spacecraft in the end? Yeah. So you, you, you lose contact. It's like space junk out there. Um, does it ever Can come back? Can you go back out and, and get it? And, you you know. go out and get it. Will it ever come in and crash on Earth? Or what's, you know, what is the trajectory of this thing? So the spacecraft will become a piece of space junk. It's in orbit around the sun, sort of like an asteroid or a meteor and such. And it's, you know, a two meter long piece of uh, of, of space junk. Um, the so solar pressure of the sun will make it rock and, and, and tumble a little bit and so forth. Uh, it'll continue falling farther and farther behind the Earth. In another 40, 50 years, the Earth is going to lap the spacecraft. We'll catch up uh, to it from behind. Uh, when that happens, as best we understand it right now, and we're trying to forecast out 50 yeah. years uh, and we don't have the final orbits, uh, but as best we can tell, what's going to happen is the Earth's going to get close enough to it within about a million miles, so it's still farther away than the than the moon. Um, when the Earth's gravity is going to start affecting the spacecraft, it's going to start tugging on the spacecraft. Yeah. And the result of that is the spacecraft's going to get a gravity assist from the Earth, and it's kind of going to turn around and start going faster than the Earth. So, so as oh, the Earth laps it and we start catching up from behind, we're going to give it a push, and it'll start going faster, and it'll start speeding up in front of us. And then 50 years after that, it'll catch up from behind. It will get a negative gravity assist, and the Earth will push it backwards. And it'll, as best we can tell, it's dance. just going to start ping-ponging back and forth and back and forth. Um, in reality, it's still always in uh, orbit around the sun, but that's the kind of orbit it's going to be in with the Earth affecting it. We don't foresee that it's ever actually going to hit the Earth or enter the atmosphere. 
I remember chatting with somebody and I was like, oh, well, in 50 years, then we could go out and capture it and bring it and put it in a museum. And I remember the person I was talking to was like, yeah, but I would rather that money of that mission to go and grab it to be used and spent on a new thing to learn new information. So it's like the value at the end of the day isn't the machine. It is the science. In the, so, in the yeah. end, it is, but the machine is part of history. It's really cool. I know yeah. that Bill Baruki, the, the Kepler <laughs> PI, really thinks that, that somebody ought to go and get that machine, uh, bring the spacecraft back, put it in the Smithsonian uh, someday. Uh, if, if, if the answer is today, the priorities would probably be against that because of the cost. Who but, knows what it looks know, like in 50 years? That's right. In 50 years, <laughs> who knows what the technology is going to be. Maybe it'll be worth it. Maybe it won't. It'll be for another generation to ask that question, well, answer even, that question. Even if you think of the early days of aviation, when it was heavily government funded and NASA or NACA before that had a role, and then eventually aviation blew, like came into this big public private, then a whole private sector economy. And, you know, hopefully the way things are going, 50 years from now, we could have a whole space economy that doing something like that isn't going to be a big deal. It, it may well be a private salvage uh, effort that brings back, that back to the ground 50 you years from now. Right? Charlie, you've been around this mission a long time and have had a number of different roles in the mission and very critical roles. How, how are you feeling at this point um, that we're in this final phase here of the flight of the spacecraft? Yeah, I've, I've been with the mission since uh, 2001, so I've been with it for, uh, for 17, 18 years now. And I have had a lot of roles, and I've, I've got a new role in this last year, uh, stepping down from the uh, position of project manager. Um, I, I'm feeling very, very privileged for having the opportunity on working this project. I started my career here at NASA Ames working on the Galileo spacecraft and was really thrilled at that opportunity. And I said to myself, I'm never going to be able to top that. And now here I am towards the end of my career, and I've been working on this marvelous project uh, uh, called Kepler. And I'm just, I just feel so good about having had that opportunity. So for folks who are listening, if you have any questions for Charlie, we are at NASA Ames and also at NASA Kepler. Uh, we're using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. So you can send us your questions and comments and we'll get to Charlie and get a mound back to you. Uh, also, we're a NASA podcast, but we're not the only NASA podcast. So don't forget to check out our friends over at Houston. We have a podcast and Gravity Assist. Uh, the best way to hear all NASA content is to subscribe to our omnibus RSS feed called NASA Casts or you can just visit the NASA app. So, Charlie Allison, thank you so much for coming. This has been way fun. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.